Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the primal war, the dawn of terrestrial Man mastered the mammoth and horse. Man was the lord of the earth. He made him an old skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein. Man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam. He harnessed the lightning for hire. He drove the celestial team. Both man was the lord of the fire. Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, good whomever, good however, all of that kind of thing. This is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 39. Yes, indeed, 39. All right. Well, off the top, what I'm going to say is that I sense a great deal of fatigue and world weariness about everything at the moment. So I'm not going to make this one particularly political. And I'm going to try and brighten up your day. Yes, indeed. I'm just going to tell a few dumb tour stories, some silly stuff. I'm going to look at a statement Nick Cave made, um, actually first, uh, which deals, I suppose, in a much more poetic and much more eloquent way than I've probably been managing to say about how many creative people or musicians are feeling about not being able to take to, take to the stage. Um, of course, it's all done in the quite typical Nick Cave way. So I'm just going to have a little go through of that. But off the top, you can follow me on Instagram, nemtheanga underscore primordial, if you wish to join my um, bot army for the upcoming struggle session. You know where to find me and you can follow my uh, rather boring adventures at the moment. Let's be honest there. Um, the Dread Sovereign album, which is my other band where I butcher the bass and do a bit of singing, has an album coming out this Friday called Alchemical Warfare. Um, all sorts of singles are dropping, an amazing cartoon. I suppose I'm not really supposed to use that word. I'm just too old to understand. Uh, comic books 
whatever they are. Um, it's a comic book video. She Wolves of the Savage Season. Yes, came together really well. So have a look out for that. You can order it from Metal Blade, which brings me to my first sponsor of the show, which is MetalBlade.com. If you're in North America, um, put AA Podcast and you will get 10% off your order in North America only. So you can, of course, just order the Dread Sovereign album. So yeah, like I said, uh, I think everyone is a bit world weary with politics at the moment. So I'm not going to bash you over the head with this, that and the other. Um, I said I was going to try and explain the Great Reset, but you know what? You can Google it yourself and have a little route around or duck, duck, go it yourself. Might be a better idea. Um, I will say off the top, you know, there's two things that people have been asking me. One is what I thought of what happened in Capitol Hill. And I will say um, high farce and high treason at the same time. I think it represented perfectly what 2020 was. The cognitive dissonance of um, absolute polar extremes in the one sentence, in the one action, in the one photograph. Um, 80-year-old grandmoms um, storming in and also a person shot in the neck. Um, it, 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 everything is the same thing. High farce, high treason, um, kind of cartoon comedy on the one hand and then deathly serious on the other. Um, and yeah, it as somebody who really loves America, who loves being there, who really likes the people and has many, many great fans, um, fans, fans and friends there, um, it really kind of breaks a part of my heart to see how the country is being held hostage by the polar opposites within that society because most people, of course, are not like that. I've met many of them um, and it really is a terrible indictment of American politics that somehow it has now become, in a way, the laughing stock of, well, I mean, look, 2020 was, I suppose, in many ways, a tragicomic year, um, part so grim that you couldn't help but laugh at it on some level and that's kind of what happened as I said high treason high farce but at the end of the day it was really terrible to see um, of course there are people who didn't call out the riots during the summer and said that oh since when do riots have to be peaceful etc etc but it's one thing burning down a Starbucks and it's another thing um, ransacking the um, seat of democracy in the United States Anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that. Maybe I will get an American guest on the podcast. I'm going to try and get one from either side of the political debate if I can chat to somebody about what's going on. Because at the end of the day, what am I but a singer in a heavy metal band living in the open prison of Dublin City? So what do I know about all these things exactly? What did I know before? Hmm. Well, I will say this, that having toured America several times and been in many, many states, this will inform some of the slightly different stories we're going to look at in the podcast. Some some silly stories of touring, some, um, you know, some daft things that we did years ago. And of course, they inform my um, opinion of the country, of the people, um, which has always been positive. And I always have stood up and told people, no, that's not the way things are in America. That's not the way American people are from the usual European cynicism, very often from people who've never been there. So that off the bat I will say. I also have to say something else, which is to kind of clear up a few maybe misconceptions. I, I presume 
they aren't misconceptions. If you've been following the podcast, you do that because you maybe have a sense of my character, of the way I am as a person, um, and that I do dwell on the darker side of life, the darker side of looking at life. Um, but never, for, never once in this whole situation have I said that this is not a health crisis. It, I've always said it is indeed a health crisis, but... I am looking at, how shall we say, the backstory, the side narrative, the sidebar. And that sidebar is all the things that concern me that I've been discussing, whether it's civil liberties or big tech or censorship or freedom of expression or freedom of speech. But they are not a replacement, for example. I'm not saying that one or other doesn't exist. Again, the cognitive dissonance that defines the last 12 months or so of two things working in tandem that seem um, tangentially opposed, so to speak, um, Maybe that doesn't make sense as an analogy. But what I'm trying to say is that it can be both things at once, both a health and a liberty crisis, whatever you want to call it like that. So all the things that I discuss in the podcast, just to qualify, I suppose, if it if it needs saying, if it doesn't need saying, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, um, you have got a myriad of insanity and me losing my mind over the last 30, however many episodes, um, going through, of course, the stages of anger, of demoralization, of all sorts of things. But at the same time, of course, discussing the things that interest me more, which, of course, is, as I said, freedom, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of speech, all those kind of things, as opposed to, as I said, the minutiae of a health crisis. So just to clear that up, considering those things, considering the things that have been um, running through my grey matter, there's been, of course, very much the idea that this year is the 30th anniversary of Primordial. Um, no, we're not that old before you start into that. We started really young. Kieran and Paul started to play together at the end of 87, I guess. They were 12 and 14 or something like this. Um, I joined the band in 1991, a week after my 16th birthday, I think. So you can do the math. But um, yeah, it's a very strange feeling to be now sitting in the 30th year of the band. What we anticipated we were going to be able to celebrate with a special tour, a special set, maybe some special videos, interviews with the band. All we had plans and they were, of course, scuppered, ruined by... Um, the situation that we find ourselves in. And it is very strange because right now we cannot meet to rehearse. So ideas for new songs have been placed on ice for now. Um, there isn't really anything we can do to celebrate our 30th birthday, but just ruminate on that, think on that and wonder when do things come back to some sense of normality. Um, and that sort of is my rough, strange segue into examining um, a statement from Nick Cave, who I think is always very insightful on these kind of things. And I suppose as an artist, is one of the greatest living artists of the 20th, late 20th, 21st century. Um, at least his gigs, the last few that I've seen, are things of almost religious revelation. They're almost like, well, of course, this, he is, a, I suppose, a self-styled preacher uh, with his red right hand or whatever. But they have that feeling, that feeling of weight, of almost spiritual importance, especially in a world that has tried so hard to take those things from people. That feeling of um, musical revelation where you begin, where you understand, oh, this is how serious and important and 
um, revealing and moving music can really be because music has been reduced to this commodity. Um, we've been told, we've been corralled into now becoming content creators as opposed to musicians and the agency with, with which we find our find ourselves our our, our musical souls, I suppose, you know, if we can wax lyrical about it and I don't sound too ridiculous about it, is displayed in its purest form on the stage, I think. And with that taken away from us, from musicians, from creative people, whether they um, be on the, you know, um, staging a play, theatre, comedy, whatever, that agency may take its shape. Um, I think there is a vast chasm, a great hole in society because it does not happen at the moment. Now, of course, you know, if you've been listening to me the last few podcasts, I sort of, in a rather gloomy way, was saying that I was struck by how many people seem to care very little about what art represents. Um, and it's hardly really surprising, I suppose, when you think about the way art or music has been treated over the last decade or two. Um, you know, as much as everyone mocked um, a Lars Ulrich of 20 years ago, and maybe he knew things that we didn't. And that's the idea that if you debase art in such a way so that everything is free, then it fundamentally loses its meaning. I don't know if that's necessarily true or what even a Mr. Ulrich was trying to achieve with um, what his sentiments were. But certainly, if your entire collection, um, if all of the albums I ever wrote can be downloaded in 30 seconds on a fast server, somebody can listen to the first minute and go, meh, don't like that and drag it into the bin, um, you're, that can be what their opinion of what you have created is worth. And on those terms, how then are we really surprised that music has been reduced to the, um, the place of content, content creation, and how as musicians now are, our state of relevance is um, judged on how much content we create. I certainly feel it. I feel the pressure every day. There are days when I really don't want to look at the screen. Um, well, I rather, you know, I, I look in the mirror and the, the lines are cut into your face a little bit deeper because you haven't had any other agency purpose movement other than the screen and the content creation necessarily. Oh, you're right. I should get out and go for a hike. Been trying, been trying, been trying. But... At the end of the day, oh God, I've said that twice. What am I at? Because that's what they teach you in journalism, not to use journalistic cliches. Anyway, that's another story for another day. But it is true that you are corralled into the need to stay relevant somehow, to be a content creator. You can see the bands who have kind of kept on kicking the can down the road and the ones who have just you know, not even stepped outside onto the road for the last nine months. And I think probably in the fullness of time, if we return to some sense of normality, you will see uh, maybe the worth of bands having tried to stay in the game somehow. For me, doing the podcast is not a compromise, really, because I enjoy speaking, arguing. I have a lot to say. I'm a bit of an asshole um, on all those terms. Yeah, we could agree on that maybe is what makes the podcast what it is because you have things that you want to get across but I'm certainly not going to be the guy who's going well here's me uh, filming making my coffee I'm going to play an acoustic version of an aha song or a pop song uh, to gain some clicks do you want to watch me play a video game etc etc that to me would be like losing a small part of my soul um, or whatever you want to call it or as we defined it last podcast 
as a shard of flint in a vacuum. It would be a tiny chip off your shard of flint that you have for a heart. I'm not willing to do that. So in a sense, the podcast is a perfect replacement. And one of the most positive things that I have done in the last nine months, and as we talked about before, are sort of the FCK 2020 scooterisms of the last podcast, trying to find something to um, give yourself some upward mobility and focus on is the most complex thing for the coming months, and especially this gloomy month of January. Anyway, what am I talking about? Let's look at this Nick Cave statement. Now, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm doing a reaction uh, video or reaction podcast. I don't really understand the concept of a reaction video where you just watch somebody else watching something. I suppose it speaks to our loneliness in the current day. But um, anyway, in Nick Cave has this um, thing called the Red Right Hand site where he just posts dispatches, letters, messages, that kind of thing. But he wrote about not being able to tour the cancelled tour and him writing a new album. And in the end, this this is what he says. In the end, so many things about 2021 remaining unpredictable, including no certainty on whether we would be able to return to deliver the large scale arena show that we wanted to. And in the way that we wanted to, we felt we had to make the decision to cancel, at least for now. And um, yeah, we may not be, of course, playing in arenas. It's very few bands and people are filling arenas um, these days. But you are in the same position in that I have been contacted by promoters um, for gigs this year asking me why I'm not posting on social media uh, the flyers, the digital flyers. And how can you say in your heart of hearts you know that the shows aren't going to happen and um, then you're going to have fans directly messaging me, us, the band, going as if they hold us responsible for these cancelled shows which I kind of understand on an emotional level when you cancel something like this people somehow think that you have more to do with it than anything else but right now um, like everybody else we have a tour which is um, hanging by the same prospect which is that it is um, going to be cancelled and I think everyone this side of summer knows deep down as the days click by that they're going to be cancelled. And he goes on to write, "Um, in many ways, lockdown has felt weirdly familiar, like I've experienced it before. I guess it should come as no surprise as I was a heroin addict for many years and self-isolating and social distancing were the name of the game, which is very interesting, not something I can identify with on on those terms. But um, he continues... I'm also well acquainted with the mechanics of grief, collective grief works in an eerily similar way to personal grief, grief, with its dark confusion, deep uncertainty and loss of control. For me, lockdown feels like um, for me, lockdown feels like a state mandated mandated version of more of the same, a formalization of the kind of hermit like behavior to which I've always been predisposed. Um, And so as difficult as it's been to see the devastation and anguish caused by the pandemic, including the lives of those close to me, and many who have written to the red hand files, I've been doing okay. And this is a, a quite revealing admission. If anybody's been listening to this podcast for the last however many episodes, will realize there is a deep seated, I suppose, anguish and pain or and hurt within the things that I've been saying and not having that agency and purpose of playing live and movement and traveling and being able to meet people and move people that connect to your music. I do understand something he says there, Um, which is about 
a state mandated a state mandated version of more of the same. I don't know why that's so hard to say, but he is true. A state mandated form of demoralization and grief. Now, if you'll know that I've been sort of railing against the impositions of um, what I define as a an open prison over the last well months and months and months. I mean, as I said before, I more or less predicted where we would be way back in episodes one, two, or three, but. Um, it is true, a, a state-mandated kind of grief has just sort of taken over everything. Anyway, he continues, and this is where I really identify with him. I'm surprised, though, at just how not being able to play live has felt. I've come to the conclusion that I'm essentially a thing that tours. There is a terrible yearning and a feeling of a life being half-lived. I miss the thrill of stepping onto the stage, the rush of the performance, where all of the concerns dissolve into a pure animal interrelation with my audience. I miss the complete surrender to the moment, the loss of self, the physicalness of it all, the feeding frenzy of communal love, the religion, the glorious exchange of bodily fluids and the bad seeds themselves, of course, and in all the reckless splendor how I miss them. And as much as sitting behind my desk can bring me a lot of joy and the imagination can be stimulating, and an even dangerous place I long for the wanton abandon of live performance. And I suppose that maybe put it better than any way that I could put it. Um, or have been attempting to put it over the last while. Perhaps my own anger and outrage at the situation has um, defined it even more, especially being in a country like Ireland where you definitely feel isolated because even though you might not have done it, you feel like you're on a rock in the Atlantic, a very small country. You can drive from one end to the other in five hours. I mean, as I said to a friend of mine in Germany, I said, man, you know, you can probably still get in your car and drive to Albania if you really want to. But that feeling of being closed in, I am surrounded by a moat of water, is very, very profound um, living in Ireland right now, dealing with this kind of thing. Nick Cave there really nailed it in a way better than I can imagine. And it is a terrible sort of yearning, as he, as he says, of a life that is half lived, like you're missing out on experiences, potential life affirming experiences, as you only get one kick around, you know, one trip around um, the ball of dirt before you shuffle off this mortal coil. And for me, that was about trying to cram in as much experience, as much sights and sounds and smells and meeting people and being places as possible as I possibly could. And the band was the perfect, um, the perfect vehicle for those experiences. And without that, you miss all of that. But it's also, as he says, the visceral adrenaline rush of stepping out onto the stage, the rush of the performance, the intense emotional physicality of it, the standing on the stage and looking out and making eye contact with people. Um, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but a long, long time ago when I stopped headbanging and all that kind of stuff um, and just spend a lot of time standing still looking at people, you realize that you didn't, I realized I didn't have to run around like a sort of black metal Bruce Dickinson all the time, that I could just stand still and stare and look at people. And you do, you make very intense eye contact with people in moments where you can tell they're immensely moved by the songs. You see people openly weeping to the coffin ships or something like that. Um, and you feel this great sense of communality. And I always said, and people always mocked me for it, but I felt that I was continuing on a great artistic tradition that I would have um, been inspired by from Irish writers and poets and all those kind of people. And I don't think that that's um, over the top to say. Um, I think in many, I think it speaks to how we view music and art now that people will scoff and mock at you for something have for somehow having ideas above your station because you say something 
artistic or that has somehow got some emotional depth or relevance. But that speaks to the emptiness, I think, culturally, that makes us judge people who do that, who find importance and meaning in all those things. And it's one of the things I've railed against in the metal scene for decades is that somehow you're mocked for taking things seriously. Oh, you can't surely take black metal seriously. Well, yeah, of course I can. Of course I can take whatever you want seriously. You either decide, you decide very quickly whether you're, uh, are you art or entertainment? Okay, well, then the line in the sand is drawn. But we have a terrible tendency to mock, to um, not want to take anything seriously because nothing has any meaning, has any worth. And he talks about the communion with the audience, not just the rush of the performance from a personal sort of selfish way. And it's not that way at all. I mean, there is an element that I spoke before in the podcast to, of, of, of power. And it's your sense of powerlessness in the situation in society right now that feels it's very hard for the ego, I suppose, to take, for the very hard for your maleness to take, very hard for your levels of testosterone to take, that you were, you've been reduced to the ordinary, so to speak. And I don't mean that in a patronizing or strange way. And I know you're not supposed to talk about maleness anymore or masculinity or any of those things. And I'm sure there are many um, there are many female artists who feel exactly the same thing. And it's not just it's not really power. It's a kind of sense of communality um, with the people who are there to see you that when you raise your hands, they raise their hands. And it's um, it's a very beautiful, intoxicating and powerful thing. Um, the physicalness. That's also a word he uses that I really like that I haven't said before. The physicality of the performance. The last time I saw Nick Cave, he almost flung himself into the crowd and ended up being passed along the crowd, people's hands, inviting people up onto the stage like an old style preacher. He ended up standing on people's shoulders 30 yards into the crowd singing. And it, it, it really did feel... Um, like a deeply moving event, almost like many of the times I saw Woven Hand, for example, or even Depeche Mode two years ago, had elements of that same kind of almost religious revival, um, which was something I always wanted to cultivate or wanted to imagine that Primordial had sometimes um, this weight, this sort of cultural weight to it. And reckless splendor. Now, there's a beautiful juxtaposition of words that, of course, I wouldn't have maybe placed... And then as if by magic, I guess my algorithm read my mind somehow. Well, I suppose that's what it's designed to do, right? It threw up The Devil's Blood live in Dublin, a video I'd never seen before of the um, incredible dramatic ending of every Devil's Blood show back then, which was the jam, the improvised jam of over voodoo dust. And it was just so moving to watch. That was the first time that I had met Selim. I'd hung out together with him. Um, and that end of that show was truly magical in the genuine meaning of the world, of the word, enough to beat down any cynicism of those things. And when I saw that um, the other day, it really brought home exactly what it was, other than the rock and roll and the economics and the agency and the purpose, but some form of a communal spirituality of music um, that is something that's been taken from us. I mean, in as much as people cannot gather in their church to give praise to whatever God they choose at the moment, um, so we also cannot gather and share in those experiences anymore. And never more was it brought home or it was brought home like a really huge nail in the coffin of watching um, the devil's blood, um, unseen footage, 
Um, and it really made me think about, consider all of the beautiful aspects of what we're missing or what we've given up and will we ever get back. The, the, the semi-religious, the religious, the magic, the true um, moving emotional feeling of communality, of, of playing live. When will we, will that return? And that uh, was encapsulated in that moment. With Dread Sovereign album comes out on Friday and there's little better than that feeling when you plug into a, t you know, plug in and get ready to play and belt out some dirty, scuzzy rock and roll in a tiny bar and put smiles on people's faces and do a shot with the crowd and hang out afterwards. All those things are such an integral part of the reason why we made music in the first place, an integral part of being a musician. They're, they are rock and roll. And I haven't, you know, I mean, I've been saying throughout the last couple of podcasts that is under threat by this situation, i.e. gigs like we knew don't happen till we go back to level zero. You know, as I maybe should have explained and just had a discussion about this with a, in an interview, level um, zero is normality. Level five is the most strict terms in Ireland anyway. You may have a different um, numerology to your levels of lockdown. However, the things that we understood, this communa communality, they don't happen till it goes back to zero. No, I said I was taking the piss because I can't stand him, but maybe it's okay for you to sit on a sit in your table with your friends and watch Bruce Springsteen and pay two or three hundred euro for an independent, um, you know, to get an independent test and then pay tons for tickets and wear your mask and blah, 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 and go, oh, so, so great to see the boss. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the integral life affirming things that give us um, energy, the ability to face drudgery. You know, you I was writing an article about um, New Wave of British Heavy Metal and punk in the late 70s. And, you know, somebody who said to me, we're discussing the difference. And I said, well, you know, back in the day, people worked hard in the iron smelting plants. I was being dramatic, of course. They worked hard and they wanted to blow off steam. And that's where rock and roll kind of came in at the weekend. You could go and see whoever it was. I don't know, the quo, maybe in 1975 and 76 and just let loose have a few beers and just cut back with your friends. That isn't possible for people now anymore. They have no coping mechanisms. And that's really what rock and roll maybe was, a coping mechanism for the banal drudgery of life, a way to let off steam. And that doesn't happen anymore. And so, yeah, that reckless abandon of stepping on a stage, that physicality, that communality is all gone in this moment. And I just wanted to, to take a moment to talk about that Nick Cave letter because it's just kind of struck a deep chord with me. And I just thought, wow, those, the, he's placed it better than I could imagine. Of course, I imagine him sitting in his mansion somewhere in his writing room with books. Somehow I have it like he has some sort of Victorian library and one his vast oak desk somehow being able to potter around and pull down all these old famous books and then you think of where you are, maybe you don't have the same opulence or all that kind of thing to inspire you to write, but maybe not. Maybe he's just sitting at the kitchen table like everyone else with an old laptop, drinking coffee going, what am I going to write about today? Maybe he's stuck in the same, the same deep trench of wondering what to do with content creation. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about. First, before I get to some dumb, stupid tour stories. 
Before I do, I would like to do an ad read for the second sponsor of the show, and that is Hate Couture. Hate Couture, hateful yet tasteful. I probably haven't really explained it properly, but they're a clothing company, a clothing manufacturing company. www.hatecoutur616.com. Put in the promo code um, Alan and you'll get f- free shipping. Um, can't say fairer than that. And they're, they're dark t-shirts. There's some dark humour going on there. They venerate serial killers. There are doubtless many, many things that are going to upset your closest um, your dearest, your the people that you love in your life, you can really upset them with some of the t-shirts that are for sale there. Or maybe you just want to, I don't know, maybe you really need an inverted cross bottle opener. I mean, who wouldn't want one? Anyway, hate couture. So, let's just unwind. Is, this, is that the word? With a few dumb tour stories. Um, considering that's my awkward segue was um, the discussion of Nick Cave and taking the stage and all that kind of thing. And I suppose um, a part of me was just had been the last few weeks daydreaming about festivals, thinking about years and places we played and situations. And I suppose in a way it also goes back to the first thing that I said about America um, and uh, the terribly sad things that are happening now made me think of the all the gigs that we played there. We didn't play as much as we should have over the years. It, it's difficult, again, in the sense, and this also somehow ties into the worthlessness of music and how it's um, seen in that because it's so difficult to make a living from playing music. Of course, everyone has jobs. So do you play in Europe where you might get paid properly or in America where you don't if you only have X amount of holidays? from your job per year. That's the perennial problem most European bands have for touring America. If you're in America right now and you wonder why you haven't seen X band or Y band or even Primordial, that's the really banal, boring reason. Um, It's the visa charges, of course. Um, A working visa in the States can cost three or four grand for a five-piece band. But in reality, it's do you have the time to take off your normal banal working job for three or four weeks to tour America to bring home very, very little. Yes, I know. The banality of economics. Anyway, I'm going to tell a dumb story. Um, uh, we were on tour with Corpiclani and Moon Sorrow um, seven or eight years ago. Maybe it was eight years ago. And it was a very funny, very strange tour. Um, too many, too many ridiculous things happened. But I'm going to I'm going to tell the story of two. So, and we'll see what happens. So we were in, um, we got quite far south. I think we were, we got to Louisiana. Um, We'd been in Pennsylvania. Um, We were heading down. I don't, we didn't get to Alabama and countries like, or uh, counties like that. But we definitely got to, um, we got to Kentucky. And, you know, of course, you're you're Irish. You're you you want to get out and see every county that you're in. You want to get up early and look out the windows. You're driving in the bus across wherever, and um, we ended up in Kentucky. Now I'm not going. I don't remember the names of the towns. If you do know, perhaps you can fill them in in your own head. But 
this was one of the this the, the, that tour and well the subsequent tours really opened my eyes to the incredible poverty that you see in the USA and made me understand more and more the phenomenon um, of a Trump, for example, or how broken certain elements of the social system were. Because when you toured, you did get to go to the middle of America, not just the either either coast who seemed to monopolize, uh, you know, the narrative. And I'm, I would imagine many people from those two coasts haven't really seen or been to much of the center. But however, Kentucky, well, let's just say Kentucky was having a few problems, at least. Um, myself and the bass player got up early that day. We were, were sort of, we wanted, you know, you want to go and you want to find that traditional American diner experience. For some reason, even that seems romantic to um, a bunch of Irish lads because it's American cultural and film hegemony that inspires you to, to, to want to seek out those things. All the things you grew up that you saw actors in, uh, in the diner, you know, whether it's in Taxi Driver or whether it's in Casino or endless American movies where, you know, many, a, 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 you know, a, a bank heist or a plot or a, a love affair was um, formed over midnight coffees in the in the diner was um so it had this strange sort of um allure that we wanted to find the most traditional looking diner and we walked around this this town came over the bridge we, nobody else was up so me and him just trailed off to find a coffee and we were really struck by the level of poverty there were people unloading their entire lives onto the sidewalk um who'd been evicted to being being you know I guess their all the possessions were being collected or impounded and people just sitting on the sidewalk at midday I um, in the blazing sunshine their whole lives obviously on that sidewalk most of the most of the downtown was boarded up all the old shops all the old antique shops all the old interesting shops were boarded up um, the area was really a bit of a mess and it was really striking especially somebody who had toured a lot in Eastern Europe um, or if you've been to Russia, you would see the similarities between elements of Russia and America are very striking. And there's probably a whole podcast in the reasons why, but they're very striking, despite, of course, the political enmity traditionally between the two countries. But we wandered around. We finally found a diner to have a coffee. And it was clear that this town had seen maybe some better days. And... And we mulled it over. We mulled it over a coffee or two, walked around, just observed the the ramshackle, fallen down decay of the place. Opposite the venue, which wasn't open yet, was a, was a whorehouse, I suppose, is the politically incorrect word to say it. Um, and I say that because the state of the building was so run down and dilapidated that that's the word that comes to mind. Certainly wasn't a modern, certainly wasn't any modern term that you were thinking of. And we were standing there just looking at the building uh, and this old battered face looked out a cracked window, literally just pulled up a blind and looked at us. And I said to I said to the bass player, I said, is that a gunshot wound in the in the door? Gunshot wound, gunshot hole, I suppose. He's like, I don't think so. But something's been flung at that door with some weight. Yeah. And he was right. There was just cracked glass and this old craggy battered face looked out at us um, with utter suspicion because we were just standing on the sidewalk outside and it was probably too early to turn tricks I suppose 
There's probably a more politically correct word for that, I suppose, now. Um, But, you know, I am 1950s dad, uh, fundamentally inside. I always was, even when I was a teenager, I was born old. So forgive me for my vernacular. We waited around and we were the first into the venue. And the venue, like many other like many other venues across the USA, um, I imagine would have been tip top or um, something to behold back in the 70s and the early 80s. Um, when there was probably an industry in the town when it was vibrant. Um, so the local bars and venues would have been once upon a time. But it was quite obvious that nothing has been happening in that town for 30, 35 years. And the venues look like it. It's really, really normal to just show up, especially it's also the same in the north of England or in rural well, maybe not rural, but B or C division cities or towns in England to show up to what once would have been the the premier rock club in Sunderland um, that is now a complete and utter ruin because nothing has happened industry-wise in Sunderland since 1983. Hello, Brexit. Yes. Anyway, so we're first into the venue and we're greeted by the site of the, um, I guess, the cleaner owner. Not really too sure. Cleaning slakes of blood with a mop um, from the women's toilet. The women's toilet is just a saloon door open back and forward. The difference is that they have saloons, uh, but no doors, whereas the men's toilet has no saloons. So you just shit, uh, you know, in the toilet while just sitting, looking at whoever's doing whatever else in the toilet, which is very common in America. And so this guy's cleaning slakes of blood off the floor. And he's just like, ah, you know, your room is a, your room is a, round to the right and we blah, 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 you know, whatever, the usual stuff. And it's always just like a back room, not really a backstage room, just a back room. And what will invariably will happen is that you get a crate of Budweiser and that's really your rider, regardless of what you ask for. So, you know, it has a charm. It has a charm. I'm sure if you were in a band that was touring endlessly and once upon a time you'd played in that venue and pulled three or four hundred people and were now pulling 45 the sixth or seventh time round, you might not find it so cheery. But, you know, we were in reasonable spirits. We went off to find, of course, the ubiquitous Irish bar. And the, the owner, I think he was from Offaly or something, told us, Oh, lads, now you want to be wary around that area at night. You know, take care of yourselves. The all on the other side of the river. The place is a mess. Hasn't seen, hasn't seen anything for 20, 30 years. Like, just mind yourselves now, lads, you know. A few pints later. A um, few pints later, us going, Ah, come on, bring me all the staff down to the show. All right, so, lads, and the usual would happen every time Irish people go into a bar they invite each other to things and then there's a guest list of um, you know of the usual Donnelly's and Flaherty's and whatever Flaherty's that's okay that's a that's a makey uppy kind of Irish name isn't it anyway so we end up having a few pints of Guinness in the afternoon before and then we go down back to the venue and you know there's it's 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 a hasn't it's not without its charm this venue two lights Stage isn't big enough for, um, for really for me to stand on. So I decided, right, I'll just stand on the floor, whatever, in front of a bit on the bit on the front of the stage. But I'll, I'll just stand on the floor. And then after a few drinks, I decided, fuck it, I'll just I'll just be in amongst the crowd and sing. Um, and so, you know, there was maybe 120, 130 people there. It was a bit crazy evening. There was um, lots of colourful characters, let us say, uh, 
the gigs proceeded uh, very strange in that they would hire often um, a policeman to do security because they, they just wouldn't. I think it was cheaper than hiring security guards. And then someone got shot outside or like across the road from the venue, nothing to do with the gig. And a whole lot of police came through the gig while um, the band before was playing and just sort of wandered through all the people, but didn't stop the gig, which was very, very strange. So when we played, there was kind of more police around, but I was in the crowd amongst all the people jostling and jumping around and whatever they were doing. Um, and it was, a, it was a cool enough gig. Very strange, lots of broken glass and blood and, you know, blood and thunder and spit and sawdust and all the things you'd imagine. Um, and I think it's one of the things in with Europeans and... Uh, especially Irish people somehow it feels like you're it feels like you're in a movie and that's somehow <laughs> how we kind of gloss over some of the grim details but the 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 gig sort of wound down and then it started to all kind of turn into a very strange movie I got cornered at the bar by four lunatics with um, like open open right wing tattoos on them all with their tops off um, all with weapons just kind of cornered me in the end of the bar saying that when they saw there were European bands playing they could have got way way more people to come down I'm like oh okay so what are you talking about oh we could have brought loads of you know loads of guys down blah 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 blah. all right as it turned out they were um one guy had just been released from prison that day I think he must have been like Aryan Nation or something um well judging by the tattoos um and they were kind of celebrating his release from prison for selling meth and they'd all come down to the gig, obviously, after having a few uh, doses themselves, uh, all with, you know, the usual, I suppose, weapons you'd carry around with yourself or stuff in the car, uh, various vague sort of um, implications, loose threats, this, that, the other sort of floating around. And everyone else just, of course, left me to kind of uh, man the fort, so to speak, or... Uh, you do a few shots with those guys while we pack up and you try not to, you know, uh, upset the uh, the fascist apple cart too much. OK, right. I've been left to do this, have I? I see. OK. And this went on for a while until we managed to try and extricate ourselves from the situation, much to the amusement, annoyance, irritation and just downright craziness of uh, everyone left in the bar. The You know, the usual cleaning slakes of blood across the floor. But we went out, we managed to, you know, kind of wheedle our way out the back door and around the side and thought to myself, well, I'm a lot of miles from home. I'm not going to get into anything odd or, you know, anything a bit strange. Because in the we'd, we'd played in um, somewhere two or three days before where somebody had been um, pistol whipped right outside the door of the venue or the door of the bus. And someone had shot into the ground, like literally three inches from or you know like six inches from somebody's head and then run off with a gun somewhere he had a primordial t-shirt on which you know I have to admit I was mildly impressed with uh, on some level uh, but he, he he seemed to steal a bicycle and then got chased by the police so we were kind of already primed for this sort of behaviour and me and Villa from Moonsorrow decided that we were you know going to slink out and slink off and go to the Irish bar uh, get a bit whiskeyed a bit drunk a bit you know layered up and whatever and so we disappeared off, you know, doing our, you know, silliness, our whiskey silliness. And then we came back up um, to this area of town and found the whole, found that there was like um, a a traffic jam 
of people trying to drive through uh, like a drive through liquor store with a, a hatch and there was a traffic jam of people at one or two in the morning uh, just being dealt you know liquor out of the hatch with a with paper bags and driving off and there was such a traffic jam there were people out of their cars arguing and shouting and it was on the forecourt of some manky old ruined dilapidated building and the same whorehouse that we looked at earlier had a kind of side bar to it and I remember looking at Villa going go on we we have to go in don't we don't we we're not I mean we can't die can we uh, no okay sure we can't so let's go in let's see let's live our best life as the man says and um, so we sidle up to the door and there's this huge dude is just standing and goes, I don't think you want to come in here, kind of thing. Oh, yes, sir, we, we kind of do. We kind of would like to come in here if that's okay with you. I don't know about that. Um, blah, blah, blah. You, know, have you, you know, what are you carrying? Uh, nothing, really. <laughs> um, well, not nothing, really, just nothing. And so eventually he lets us in and we have to go through these big uh, turnstile, like I guess an X-ray turnstile for no guns and no knives. And it was like entering a scene from a Quentin Tarantino movie. It was... It was pretty grim. It was exactly as you'd expect, maybe minus some of the physical menace. When you go to Russia, um, you get the sense that people um, like, you know, someone could take you off in a taxi and bury you in the bury you in a forest somewhere. And nobody's really going to miss you that much. There's an element of that to Russia. Um, America's a different kind of thing, a different kind of recklessness or lawlessness. But for sure, this was just lots of wrecked crazy old methy alcoholic sitting around um it was a really dark dingy gloomy old kind of bar where battered old battered old whores came up and sat beside you what can i do you for honey blah 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 whatever and you have to be you know if you've ever been anywhere like that before now i have to admit for me i have no interest in going to strip clubs i think it's um just sort of pointless um Never been interested, ever. It's not my thing. Um, I find them a bit distasteful. Anyway, we went into this one because we thought that it looked so grim that we went there for the grimness as opposed to the... Um, of course, we're black metalers, you know what I mean. We went there for the grimness rather than the titillation. And sure enough, um, some poor woman came up to talk to me and it's obvious that her eye socket at one stage had been broken and she had a scar. I'm not making this stuff up. And you have to be careful what drink you buy someone because if you buy someone the wrong drink that they ask for you could find out in the small print that that drink might be two or three hundred euro so you have to sort of be within your wits of understanding what's happening and there's a two drink minimum before you have to i suppose pay for something so we decided to drag our two drinks out and watch what was or take part um even passively in this quentin tarantino-esque movie scenario all the time watched by security and huge dudes just standing there um, I'm pretty sure at the time because um, I would imagine there was no shower there's very rarely a shower that I probably still had like remnants of corpse paint on so the sight of some gangly you know gangly skinny Irishman well I mean most Europeans are skinny in the United States but oof, it's a low blow um, with uh, you know eyeliner or guyliner on still from not being able to shower from being on the stage was not not the most um, wasn't my best look so we stayed in there for a while and uh, 
decided to leave with our with our uh, feelings, our um, our evening intact, and that we'd got the best the best cinema that the United States could offer in that one day and afternoon. We'd had our we'd had our coffee shop conversation. We'd seen the police rush a venue. We'd met white supremacists. We'd heard that somebody was shot. We'd seen somebody cleaning blood off the floor, broken glass. Um, we'd been chatted up by whores with knife scars. Um, and we'd seen people um, with their entire lives sitting on the sidewalk in the sun with probably little or nothing to their name. Um, and this was a sort of, I won't say a typical day, but most definitely a, a, a middle South America kind of experience. Um, and I don't think people, as I said, really realise the extent of some of the poverty and destitution in some of these places. Um, I suppose recently um, you've seen documentaries about the Appalachians and that kind of thing, and that there is a huge, vast swathe of middle and South America that I think is very misunderstood. Now, don't get me wrong, all the people we met were utterly lovely, generally, or supremely threatening, one or the other, but our experience of that day and that tour in America where you saw um, you could walk literally from an incredibly rich affluent I suppose hipster with a small h street turn the corner and you're in um, you're in the dirty downtown you're in oh, an area of meth and heroin addicts literally just around the corner and you realize people from each uh, area don't go into the other areas and um the, the vast swathes of homeless, which I guess are nothing compared to there are now. Um, even then, when we first toured and played in the United States in the 10, 12 or eight years ago, you could see, um, you could see, well, maybe in hindsight is twenty twenty, I guess. But if someone came along and tried to speak to some of these people, you could see they were going to go, well, look, nothing's happened here in 30 or 40 years. Um, sure, we might as well. Hey, whatever. And so... The whole thing points to and pointed to and, well, obviously was a very strong signpost of a broken system, a broken country, a system where um, poor people could just fall through the gaps and somehow um, health care and housing was seen as some element of socialism and not some element of trying to take um, care of the um, poorest and most vulnerable in your society, which, of course, should be part of any um, compassionate um, welfare system. By the way, the welfare system isn't somehow a socialist invention. You can go back to Bismarck's Germany in the 19th century and find his implementations of the same, a similar thing. So please stop calling healthcare socialist. It doesn't make sense. It's not. Anyway, what a mini little rant there at the end. Anyway, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? I was trying to say here in episode 30-something or other, is it 38, 39? Who knows? Trying to just sort of make a little poignant, semi-nostalgic podcast and just with the main theme, I suppose, that America encapsulates all these things and is going through dark days. And I think that we have to realize in the West that an unstable, broken America is bad for us all. So don't judge all of the people there by the, uh, how shall we say, the most garish, glarish, 
polar opposites. Like the, the people on either side of the debate have the loud hailers now and are screaming the loudest, but that doesn't reflect the majority of people's. And I'm not being patronising either. Anyway, I don't know if that story, now that I think of it, was particularly uplifting. I had a story about meeting Journey. Um, oh, go on. Go on, you say. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll do you a deal. I'll read the last ad read. Uh, and then I'll tell you a story about meeting Journey. How about that? Yes, indeed. Um, and the last uh, ad read is from Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I suppose 10, 11, 12, I was a little goofy, stranger things looking fella. Um, and we did used to play Dungeons and Dragons. Well, we used, we didn't have any money for the book, so we used to make our own maps and all that kind of thing. And then oddly enough, Lamentations of the Flame Princess was a fanzine in the 90s that interviewed me that randomly got in contact about, well, almost three decades later. And does this appeal to many of you? I don't know. You're going to see if you're looking on YouTube a few pictures of some of the books. Um, one of them is called Bloodfire Death, which is pretty bloody cool. But... Let's have a look. Lamentations of the Flame Princess is the mind-bending and merciless tabletop role-playing game of weird horror and fantasy inspired by the works of authors like H.P. Lovecraft and Clive Barker, as well as independent horror cinema and underground heavy metal. A world where media is increasingly sanitized and seeking the broadest possible audience. Well, I suppose, yes, indeed, and this is what I'm doing here, isn't it? Lamentation seeks to be irresponsible, in its conception, uncompromising in its content and insane in its execution. Hmm. They have uh, guest writers like Dave Brocky from Gwar, um, who was an artist. Uh, and uh, the books, I'm sure I'm going to put something more, are really pretty bloody impre impressive. Um, the irreverence in not only naming the adventure anthology reprints of earlier work, Blood, Fire, Death, um, altering the wild hunt of Odin artwork for the slipcase. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. Even I can see that the artwork is really something special. The whole general production quality is insanely high. Um, if you're looking on YouTube, I should post a few pictures of Death, Frost, Doom, Fermentum. Um, and the fact that their printer um, is in Finland and has been in business since 1890. Um, like I said, I'm not a gamer, but they are very impressive. And even just a cursory glance through them, like I said, had me uh, fascinated, to be honest with you. So if you are into role playing, Dungeons and Dragons, all that kind of thing, I know it's made a return. I've seen people playing it in bars and all that kind of thing. Um, have a search for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Um, but if you go to www.lotfp.com for more information, free downloads and links to um, they have a EU, US and PDF storefronts. Um, what these are, are, I suppose, gaming manuals, stories. Um, the books, just at the cursory glance, are full of cool illustrations, maps, um, instructions for dice playing, all this kind of stuff. There you go. I don't know. Don't blame me. I'm, don't blame me. Blame my 12-year-old self. Have a look. Have a go. Right. Let's finish on me meeting Journey. Um... Promodi was playing uh, Bang Your Head, Journey, Y&T, Wasp. We were on in the middle of the day, I guess. And um, I'm standing in the toilet part, having a piss, but um, full on black metal, everything. But I decided because it was, our, I think, our first time playing or and that I was going to make something of a statement. I was covered in blood. 
um, covered in animal blood of some description or other. Somebody brought me from them. Yes, sorry, sorry to my vegan overlords. But yes, uh, that day I happened to be have blood on me and corpse paint and everything else. And I was standing in the toilet having a piss. It was a, maybe an hour a bit before playing. And Neil Sean from Journey came in beside me and he to have a piss and he's looking at me. And he goes, hey, man, if, if you don't mind... Uh, what is this? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> what is this? And we're both standing there holding our D's. Uh, like this, this uh, outfit? I said, oh, it's black metal. And he goes, black metal? Uh, what is that? And I went, uh, well, you know, have you ever heard of Venom? Uh, no, not really. Right. Black metal? Okay, I don't know how to describe this. Anyway, so we're standing there, you know, shaking, shaking and making up. Um, he's adjusting his curls in the mirror and he looks at me and he goes, man, can I borrow you for a few minutes? And I thought, well, why not? You know, he's never stopped believing, I suppose. Uh, so their little, you know, kind of room is beside ours. And ours is just the usual, you know, peanuts, um, uh, sweaty middle-aged men talking about farting and whatever else that most bands do. And I go into theirs and theirs is like billowing... Um, billowing curtains, purple stuff, scented candles, all sorts of stuff. And they're all just standing around inside there. And Neil Sean introduces me to the whole room. And he goes, uh, this is uh, Alan and he's black metal. And I went, uh, hello. And sat down on their couch and we ended up having a few shots or a few drinks. Uh, while I tried to patiently explain black metal to Neil Sean uh, of Journey and once upon a time Santana fame. And, um, you know, of course, they he told me that they hadn't played in Europe in 30 something years, told me their gig fees. Their drummer had just kind of gone missing on a drunken bender and was being replaced by the, the drum tech for a few shows. It told me way overshared lots of crazy information, stuff about don't stop believing. And eventually their photographer came in and, and wanted me to, me to take pictures with them. So they I had all of Journey doing Satan's Claw, doing black metal poses. <laughs> and um, of course I never got a picture of any of the photos so I didn't have my phone with me and he says hey man when are you playing I said oh you know 45 minutes and so we started playing the intro goes where you know it's blazing sunshine and we're looking around and I turn around to have a look and sure enough for Empire Falls all of well not all but Neil Sean and a few of Journey are just standing there giving me the thumbs up for Empire Falls there you go hmm? if only I could find that Satan's Claw moment with Journey, it would probably break the internet. That, my friends, is my closing, uplifting, dog on a skateboard story for the news to close out episode 39 of Agitators Anonymous. My friends, metal never bends. And remember, stay sane, stay healthy, and don't let them win. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 